0: This is episode 223 of The Stem Cell Podcast, Supporting Science with Dr. Jackie Damon. Hey everybody, we are Daylon and Aroon. Welcome back to The Stem Cell Podcast, where we culture knowledge and stem cell research by talking to some of the brightest minds in the field. The Stem Cell Podcast is brought to you by Stem Cell Technologies, a global biotechnology company supporting life science research and fostering communication and collaboration in science, Today, we have one of those stem cellians, Dr. Jackie Damon. She's a Principal Scientist of Scientific Support at Stem Cell Technologies. She's on the podcast to talk about her transition from academic to industry science and the work she does at Stem Cell Tech. We've also got our usual roundup of recent highlights and stem cell news that's coming up.
1: But first, looking to stay current with the latest research and news in the fields of immunology and cell biology, We'd like to remind our listeners to check out Stem Cell Science News. Featuring the most recent top peer-reviewed research and review papers, as well as industry policy and science news, Stem Cell Science News provides a platform that allows researchers to stay up-to-date with their field while saving time. You can subscribe free at stemcellsciencenews.com. We're going to get things started with a stem cell paper that came out from andy mcmahon's lab who's actually at the university of southern california usc just down the road from here me here in sunny la los angeles first author here is tracy tran and andy mcmahon's lab really well he's actually the director of the usc stem cell program and he's been working on the kidney for uh, quite a while now they've recently adapted and developed this really cool scalable kidney organoid system that they can use to model different disorders of the kidney. And this is one of the kind of the fruits of their labor that they're showing here in cell stem cell. This is a, a paper that came out a few weeks ago, but I still wanted to cover it. I think it's pretty relevant to the things that we like to talk about here on the show. And I'm a fan of stem cell science in LA, what suit me. <laughs> a scalable organoid model of human autosomal dominant polycystic kidney disease for disease mechanism and drug discovery. Like I mentioned, first author here is Tracy Tran. Um, so we know, we've talked about organoids all the time on the show. Uh, we can use them to, to model human development disease and potentially even use them for therapeutic options in some circumstances. And the other paper I'm actually gonna be talking about in the roundup is also an organoid related paper. And it has, I think it's, it's also very translationally oriented. We'll get to that in a little bit. It's about T cells. Here they're reporting a modified human kidney organoid system that's generating thousands of homogenous organoids. This is an important point to remember in the organoid uh, studies, is that you have to make homogenous organoids. that can't be heterogeneous. You have to be able to reproduce them in a roughly equivalent way. Each of these organoids, these kidney organoids, contains one to two nephron-like structures. Of course, the nephrons are important structures found in the kidney and they did a bunch of single cell transcriptomic profiling and also immunofluorescence validation to confirm that these nephron-like structures are similar to their true counterparts in the body. Uh, There's distinct morphogenesis um, and comparable to human nephrogenesis. I think what they're showing here is there are some signs of immaturity, as you might expect. These are you know, stem cell-derived organoids. Stem cell-derived cells are in- immature for the most part. Uh, But they are, you know, relatively on par with what you would find in vivo. And so what they did is they took this platform and then utilized it for therapeutic screening. And I think they they focused on a disease in polycystic kidney disease, which has a really interesting and prominent phenotype. You have these cysts that are forming in the kidney. And the interesting thing here is that they're able to reproduce the formation of those cyst-like structures uh, in these kidney organoids too, it kind of reminds me of some of the work that was coming out of Madeline Lancaster's lab, where they're able to show the kind of formation of the uh, those fluid sacs in their organoids as well. Cerebral spinal cerebral spinal fluid in that uh, situation. And here, uh, these cysts that are forming in these kidney organoids, they're able to um, do a disease model. So basically, by inactivating PKD1 and PKT2, which are prominent genes involved in polycystic kidney disease uh they're, they're these mutant organoids exhibited efficient and reproducible cyst formation and they use gene editing to actually knock out these genes okay so the the other cool thing is these cystic outgrowth in, in these organoids could be grown for months to actually grow these centimeter sized cysts which is wild if you think about it an organoid creating a centimeter sized cyst in vitro um and then they did a the next step the obvious next step which was to do a drug screen to find pathways and compounds that would be able to alleviate the cyst formation uh used a large protein kinase inhibitor screen in a live imaging assay to identify a few compounds blocking cyst formation but not the growth of the organoid so that's important right it can block the disease phenotype but not necessarily block the growth of the organoid which is equivalent in this situation to kind of the the kidney as it would be so you don't want to hurt the kidney but you want to kill the disease so it's a cool system I think you know it's a pretty straightforward approach you develop an organoid system you do disease model with it you get a very prominent phenotype I think that's the the real beauty of this particular study is that phenotype that PKD1, PKD2 knockout phenotype is is really amazing. These centimeter-sized cysts that you can see in the figures is really pretty striking. And then utilize the system for a drug screen, right? And the next step is certainly, what are you going to do with this? Can you take some of these compounds that you discovered in this drug screen and use them for clinical applications for polycystic kidney disease? That's, that's the hope. And uh, I think it's for those of you who haven't listened to the show too much, this is an example, this paper really exemplifies the power of organoid biology as we're seeing right now, this pathway, this workflow from discovery research to translational. I think that's really the power of these model systems.
0: Yeah, and, and the disease, I think the choice of disease here is, uh, it's is—it's—it's relevant because it is, you know, what defines the disease. It's in the name, right? Polycystic kidney. And um. I think that it's a good fit right because it's something that can you can visualize and it is really impressive that they're able to recapitulate that phenotype but i will also say that yeah when you're working with embryoids organoids any type of thing a cell based structure cis formation is kind of like built in right so uh, as i said here they do a very careful job of, of showing that the with the controls associated and then by knocking out the genes um, showing that the phenotype does follow from these manipulations, but I think it was really a good fit in terms of uh, it's a it's a phenomenon that uh, manifests readily um, in these embryoid or organoid systems, and I, I think they do mention it actually. in Limitations is that I guess next next steps, in addition to seeing whether these drugs are are real uh, candidates in the disease context and in people, perhaps or animals first, I guess. Um, the other the other real question is while you may recapitulate the cyst formation um, there is still some question of how that weighs on the disease manifestations in terms of the function you know the function of those kidney organoids and whether or not um, that can be rescued uh, by these same drug candidates so yeah I, i think a really good good example of how you can apply uh, these stem cell pluripotent stem cell systems to really get a good granular view of, of disease mechanisms, um, and yeah, a, a really I think high profile study in cell stem cell. Uh, I'm glad you uh, brought it into the fore room. Yeah, it's I think a good one to cover. I think it's also kind of a reflection of how
1: um, you know some of these high profile stories are perhaps in part high profile because of the really neat phenotypes that you see associated with these organoids like the cyst formation in this situation carcolar and this hairy organoids right you remember that the hair forming organoids that was pretty wild uh sasha mentioned with like the the cardioids and the multiple assembloids of sergio pasca and the cerebral spinal fluid organoids of Mallet lancaster so i think there's there's a there's a cool factor to it too right you know i think getting that cover paper, it's easier It's easier to do that, to get that cover image if you have a really neat looking organoid, right?
0: <laughs> yes, absolutely, and no coincidence, there were a ton of videos in this uh, that were associated as supplemental video with this um, paper and they're real fun to watch, as you said, because the phenotype just emerging right before your eyes, it's the real uh, value, the, the gold uh, embedded in these in vitro uh, developmental systems um, but, you know, as you alluded to in your little run-up there, um, one of the challenges with all of these systems is that most of the cells and tissues we make are relatively immature, right? Um, and this is particularly relevant in the heart. I'm kind of drinking your milkshake here, everyone, uh, forgive me, but I uh, can't help myself. It was a great story that I saw in some reports, and it's about um, generating a human adult-like cardiac tissue, Right because uh ips derived cardiomyocytes exhibit these immature phenotypes that are really typical of early stages of heart development it's not surprising right because the differentiation that that we do with these cells um, is in a matrix that's not really akin to the physiological milieu and the differentiation time scales are shorter than what you see in utero in normal human cardiac development um and because of these shortfalls, a lot of groups have made efforts to improve the maturation of induced pluripotent cell-derived cardiomyocytes by kind of trying to manipulate the microenvironmental factors or by transplanting these immature cells directly in situ into the heart. Um, And, you know, so they take on some of these more mature phenotypes. And we've talked about a lot of these kind of Mechanical preconditioning, you know, there's all kinds of substrates that have been used. The engineered heart tissue, you know, Casey Ronaldson, Ronaldson, Ronaldson Bouchard talked about a lot of her work on this on the on the show. Um, and while these 3D methods, I think a lot of them, you know, either injecting in vitro or creating these engineered scaffolds, they've been really effective. I think the phenotype, the advance in maturation that they've been able to demonstrate, is really impressive along, um, you know, many parameters, structural, electrophysiological capabilities. Um, But here's the thing, and I think this is a really neat take here uh, by two uh, investigators here, Junaid Asfal, who's first, and Keish Titz, it's just a single name. I've never seen this in an author list, single name like Cher. Those are from uh, University of California, San Francisco, and UConn, respectively. But the great idea here in innovation Is just from a pragmatic uh, standpoint, you know, uh, Casey created these nuts, you know, multi chamber organoids. It's like really expensive, I would guess, although reproducible as she showed. But like when you're talking about being practical in an industrial commercial uh, context, perhaps you need to like go down a dimension here and try and get a more reductive 2D system. That's more scalable and reproducible and less resource intensive. Okay, so that was the effort here. And the way they went about it was to use a, a substrate, this cardiac mimetic matrix, they call it CMM. It's just what it says it mimics the adult human heart matrix ligand chemistry, rigidity, and ultrastructure. Um, So, I mean, it's not an easy thing to do. There's a lot of science and just, you know, material science and structural biology that goes into generating the matrix. And the upshot is that they were able to get more mature uh, cardiomyocytes pretty quickly, within 30 days. So they're able to stay within that relative time scale, but get uh, these more mature cardiomyocytes that were like transcriptomically, um, also like the, the strain energy the metabolism was more akin to adult, uh, enhanced redox handling, uh, the calcium handling more efficient, electrophysiology better. Um, So yeah, and then finally, uh, just for the capstone there, they did a little disease modeling showing that you were able to, um, you know, use these cells to model hypertrophy. But here was the the catch, is that the the more adult uh, cardiomyocytes that they made, were um able to withstand the progression of the hypertrophy better, so I, I don't know maybe that's a little kernel there that these more mature cells uh are maybe are the less mature or more susceptible like the 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 modeling effect is amplified relative to adult i don't know I just thought it was an interesting thing there a little a little appendage at the end suggesting that you know we may have to incorporate a more mature uh, cardiomyocyte to really get uh, a reliable reflection of what's going on in the adult heart, which is obvious to say, but I think this is maybe evidence that the modeling manifests differently in an immature versus a mature cardiomyocyte. So I thought a great study from, I'm not even going to try and say the names again, Uh, I apologize, but this was a really great study across coasts, California to the Northeast and Connecticut. Great work.
1: I'll let you steal my milkshake on this one that's totally <laughs> fine but yes this is kind of what i do man this is ips cardiomyocyte disease modeling and modeling at its best this has certainly been a limitation in our field for a long time and i think a lot of different people are taking different approaches to solve this we've got casey Ronald- ronaldson bouchard like you mentioned who's got her multi-organ and, and paste cardiac tissues to enhance maturation that way. I think the issue with some of those is there may not be as as scalable or as accessible to say like a, a new lab to actually integrate some of those technologies into the lab. Other approaches like, uh, I know Chuck Murray and some other folks have been doing stuff with like metabolic drive driven maturation of cardiomyocytes and these folks. And I think there's some other folks doing similar work are trying to modulate modulate the substrate in which the the cells are grown. And ideally, I think it's a combination of everything that you have to really kind of put together to to drive these cells down that maturation phenotype. I still don't think anybody has shown a direct one to one that oh this iPS cardiomyocyte is perfect. It is perfectly replicating the adult cardiomyocyte phenotype. I think that's still going to take time. I may be pessimistic. I don't know if we're ever going to get there. But the question and this is something you alluded to is like how good do you actually need to get, right? If you have an adult like tissue, is that good enough to model an adult phenotype like a hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, a dilated cardiomyopathy, whatever, something that's manifesting in in adults. Whereas on the other hand, and you know, kind of the the converse approach is that maybe it's not a problem if these cells are immature if you're modeling a disease of immaturity, like a developmental disorder, you know. So in that situation, you don't need to make them mature because you're modeling congenital heart disease, something that happens in Euro when these cardiomyocytes are already like, you know, a few months old. So that may be the the more perfect. I mean, I'm biased because I, I do some early developmental modeling too. But in my opinion, that might be the best application for these IPS, immature IPS cardiomyocytes, because you don't have to worry about the whole maturation fiasco,
0: right? But I guess
1: there's a lot of different takes on this story,
0: yeah, I agree with that. and And uh, you know I'm a developmental biologist at heart, too. so I say, who cares about mature? And from a pragmatics uh, point of view, also, I think that um you know you can model maybe some aspects, some facets of the of the the phenotypes and disease um, and and maybe that's enough to to make progress, right? It doesn't have to be perfect, as you said. and and for me really the 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 great thing about this story is this idea and i think that it's per- permeating the field generally Evangelos Kitskinis at the at the isscr he had a great talk that I, I caught about taking the matrix um to to make better cells in the brain and and cells that would would be better uh would model uh disease phenotypes better so i i i feel like this is not Brand new. It's maybe an old idea that is really reaching maturity now, and a lot of no pun intended. And a lot of groups are really applying it um, in in every uh, tissue and organ system. So it's an exciting time, I think, getting toward uh, more native and physiologically relevant tissues and organs. Reaching maturity. I see what you did there, Dale. I'm on
1: you. I got my eye on you, man. All right. So moving on to another organoid story, like I alluded to in the, the first paper. uh, this is cancer organoids and actually is a really, I think, quite a high profile paper in nature biotechnology with some familiar faces. Um, Anne Rios over in the Netherlands is the last author in his paper, Joanna Decker's first author. Also Hans Cleavers is on this paper. Certainly he's moved on to Roche to be one of their senior grand directors of Roche and their you know in vitro biology. I don't even know what his title is anymore, but he's Hans Cleavers, he can have whatever title he wants, I guess, right? Um, so we're obviously, if we're talking about Hans Klebers, we're going to talk about some organoid related stuff and patient specific organoids in this situation. This is a really cool intersection of a few technologies here. And I think the real power here is the, the imaging based approaches that they're using in this paper. So the title here, again, nature biotechnology is uncovering the mode of action of engineered T cells in patient cancer organoids. So T cells and organoids, two very hot topics here, Um, they're looking specifically at how, um, you know, these T cell based approaches can be applied to solid tumors, that's the dream, right, and we talk about it all the time here on the show how T cells given some limitations and CAR T therapies have been pretty decent at targeting these liquid tumors, leukemias and so on, but really the dream long term. Is how you can apply some of these same T cells, engineered T cells, CAR T-based approaches for solid tumors, and we've you know chatted with a lot of folks on the show about this exact topic. But to do that, to actually take that next step and jump to the the solid tumors for T cell-based therapies, you need improved in vitro models that may be able to predict how these T cells are actually going to function, and that may be able to review, reveal some of the therapeutic modes of action at the molecular level. So what they're doing here is they're describing a interestingly named system called Behaved, where the E at the end is actually a three. That's pretty nifty. That's, I'm onto them. That's exciting. Uh, Behaved, it's a system that they can use to actually study the dynamic interactions of immune cells and patient organoids at the same time. So what they're able to do is to image and conduct transcriptomics at simultaneously pretty much to figure out where these T cells are moving around in these patient cancer organoids and seeing which subsets of T cells are really good at doing their jobs and other subsets that maybe not so, and then figuring out transcriptomically what is the difference between these two populations of T cells, right? So they applied this BEHAVED or BEHAVE3D. I don't even know what you call it. It's a cool acronym, though. I will say that. I'll call it BEHAVED. We apply, they're applying BEHAVED to actually track... Uh, this is great. 150,000 engineered T-cells cultured with these patient-derived solid tumor organoids, and they identified super-engager, quote-unquote, clusters that are comprising T-cells with really strong ability to kill the cancer cells in these organoids. And then there's other things that they looked at, which is also... Uh, cancer metabolome sensing engineered T-cells, which they call TEGs. It's another subset of cells that's able to sense the cancer in those organoids and target them specifically in that way. Um, they, they found certain behavior-specific gene signatures, including a gene group of 27 genes that previously didn't have any described T-cell function that are actually specifically expressed by these super powerful, super engager killer TEGs. Um, and then they showed in a kind of a, a follow up piece of uh, data that there's a, a type one interferon uh, based approach that can prime some of these resistant cancer organoids for actually being killed by these super engager killer <laughs> TEGs. Um, so, the, it's I think the power of this system is figuring out which populations of T cells that are subjected to these organoids have. Have, are, are the most potent, and then understanding why they're the most potent based on these transcriptional analyses. I will say just the imaging here is, is outstanding. And uh, like I said before, and like we've talked about a million times, I'm a sucker for cool imaging, just being able to track where these T cells are moving around in these organoids, you can see why this is a nature biotech paper. It's it's you know really cool to technologies that are being intersected married in a really perfect way to figuring out how t-cells are doing their thing and how we can figure out which t-cells are the best at their job
0: the imaging and the analysis is nuts in this like all the renderings and the tracking um, which is all really critical to getting to to their endpoint there and and answering the question um so i was kind of I, i thought felt kind of like they were goofing with me with all the nomenclature in this. I couldn't find what behave 3D even stood for, but it's like standard uh, paper out of the EU is I feel like they're just they're just throwing stuff out there to troll the Americans. I mean maybe not. I'm, I'm, I'm maybe playing myself there. But beyond that, there was also that like I'm just looking at the designations here in terms of the cell cell types. there is they call them the dying, which that makes sense. the static, I get it. But then there's the lazy the Slow Scanner, the Medium Scanner, the Super Scanner, the Tickler, the Engager, and the Super tickler. Engager. I mean, that's a lot of names that just came out of nowhere, and they're very editorial. So I I think that, you know, they saw Hans on the author list, and they were like, you come with whatever names you want, my man, um, which is not to take away from the other authors in this. This is a dream team uh, of researchers from a, from a lot of institutes and uh, Really, yes. Fine, finely tuned all the analysis here, and and uh, as you said, a, a really pivotal, I think, finding at the end.
1: Some days I'm lazy, and some days I'm a tickler <laughs> two day long. I just gotta say, uh, but yeah, I mean, talking about amazing imaging here, uh, really beautiful tracking of individual T cell populations. Like I said, 150,000 cells that they are able to track and conduct transcriptomic analysis. So you can understand why this is a Nature Biotech paper,
0: right? For sure, a lot of biotech in that paper, for sure. <laughs> um, and uh, now we're staying in the blood here. You know, it's funny, I think what's interesting about the blood, which is everything, frankly, but one of the more interesting things is like the diversity of treatments that have come out of it, e- e- exemplified, I think, by T, right? And probably I would argue that one of the more revolutionary therapies of the last 20 decades has moved the needle in a way like nothing else. Um, but at the same time we have like the same old questions we've been asking about hematopoiesis forever and one of those is you know where do the hematopoietic stem cells really come from um and you know we've gone a long way in answering that but i don't think we're quite there i don't have a full picture and the other is how can we make them and how can we keep them in their stem like state uh, ex vivo in vitro whatever you want to call it so that we can apply them toward these revolutionary therapies like car t um, and yeah, we, we've we're stuck, we're stuck on a lot of those elements because it's a tremendously complex system and it's a moving target. Um, but we do know a lot, as I said, uh, and there's a lot of reason to, to really crack that nut finally. Um, but just, you know, as we all know, the hematopoietic system and development in mammals develops in successive waves. Um, there's the primitive and then there's intermediate, but the, the first definitive hematopoietic stem cells appear in mid-gestation in the mouse that's embryonic day 10.5 and they come from these hemogenic endothelial cells that are in the ventral surface of the dorsal aorta right they undergo this endothelial to hematopoietic transition um, in the AGM or aortic gonad mesonephros uh, and then those cells, the nascent HSCs, they become amplified in the fetal liver and the placenta, other extramedullary sites, um, and then ultimately colonize the bone marrow, which is like their long-lived niche, right? So as we said there, the, the, before the HSC, you have a hemogenic endothelium that becomes the HSC. That's specified in the two days before, between e- embryonic day 8.5 and 10.5, and it undergoes these transitions um, to ultimately generate the hematopoietic stem cells, and there's a lot of signaling pathways involved. With that Notch, WENT, BMP, there's a whole menu there. Um, all these transcription factors and networks, uh, but you know the the cells that become the hemogenic endothelium um, and the interactions that govern that process unknown. You know, so we're just moving back a peg every time. It's like, where do those HSCs come from? Oh, hemogenic endothelium. Okay, where do those come from? Unknown. We're moving back on that. So one of the candidates, uh, both for their cell of origin as well as some of the niche derived factors that may be supporting the process. is mesenchymal stem cells, why because in the bone marrow, of course, and everywhere really mesenchymal stem cells are emerging as a really potent regulator. of cell homeostasis and mobilization differentiation, a lot of things Um, And in the bone marrow it's very well established that mesenchymal stem cells are a critical part of the of the niche. So based on that idea, um, Vashe Chandra Kathan and uh, John Pimanda, who are both at the Lowy Cancer Research Center at University of North South Wales, New South Wales, sorry, in Sydney, Australia, um, they reason with this hypothesis that perhaps mesenchymal stem cells in the AGM may be contributing to either supporting uh, the generation of this hemogenic endothelium or maybe directly contributing. Uh, to that pool of cells uh, and so they focused on mesenchymal stem cells of course in the agm um, during this endothelial hematopoietic transition and what they showed and, and this is kind of under underrepresenting the amount of work that went into this they had a lot of different mice to track mesenchymal stem cells and unique cell populations And what they found was a couple really big innovations i think one is um, our insights uh, which will lead to tremendous innovation i'm hoping uh, one is that the, there's these mesoderm-derived PDGFR alpha-positive cells. They call them these mesp p one derived uh, PSCs, um, so pdgf derived stromal cells. Uh, and those directly contribute to hemogenic endothelium. Uh, and those ultimately populate the AGM uh, in that critical phase, right, around E10.5. But later on, two, three days later, there's a whole different population mesenchymal stem cells in there that are derived from these neural derived from neural crest here they call them these wint1 derived pscs um, using that marker and here's the other thing that's really i think a big deal they took the non-endothelium non-hemogenic endothelium all right so they took an adult or eight to ten week old mouse heart okay so they took endothelium from the heart of an adult mouse and they aggregated it either With these MESP derived or the WINT-1 derived, so the early or the late um, derived uh, PDGFR alpha stem cells. And the adult heart endothelium was able to activate a hematopoietic transcriptional program and generate, directly generate long-term repopulating hematopoietic stem cells. And this happened in the in the in the context of the MESP derived, but not the Wnt1-derived. So it only happened in these true AGM-derived, or this first phase, I guess you'd call it AGM-derived um, mesenchymal stem cells. And, and this is a huge deal. I mean, they went on to talk about mechanisms showing if you inhibit PDGFR-alpha, BMP, Wnt, notch, all these factors that are known to be involved in this process, that it affects it. But this is crazy to me, because it's taking a cell that's so far away from this environment of, of hemogenic transition, of capacity to form hematopoietic stem cells, and it's being conferred on it by a non-cell autonomous process, presumably by either paracrine or, you know, direct juxtacrine signaling. And and, and like, you know, end of the day, I'm wondering, give me some of that, you know, early MESP derived mesenchymal stem cells. I could put it with any endothelial cell, I wonder, and, and perhaps generate a, a, a true hematopoietic stem cell and the real hope for me and the exciting thing is, is trying to find the correlate in the human system um, from embryos presumably, uh, aborted fetuses in the, in the early stage, but ultimately from pluripotent stem cells because this is something we haven't even been looking for. Looking for a mesenchymal stem cell as something that will input into generating hematopoietic stem cells, I don't think anyone's been looking or few people have been looking in that dire- direction. So for me, conceptually, this opens, this kicks open the door, to I think a lot of a lot of approaches that may ultimately, um, you know, culminate in this holy grail that we've been seeking for decades. Yeah, this is
1: wild. I mean, this is this is a paper that sort of
0: reflects the importance of the
1: niche in specifying hematopoietic stem cells, and certainly, like what you're alluding to at the end there, the the human application is the the downstream. It does kind of. Depress me though, a little bit as somebody who's not an HSC biologist, just, and we've talked about this before with other HSC biologists too, just the importance of the in vivo niche and being mm. able to properly specify HSCs, hematopoietic stem cells, ex vivo, like that, that disconnect is is somewhat depressing to me because the, the big picture for me is how can you replicate that niche ex vivo perfectly to actually be able to create that holy grail and create those human perfect human hematopoietic stem cells right can you pick
0: me up from the dumps here dale on how how, how are we going to fix this problem yeah i'm with you and and for me that's always been the achilles heel is that you have this you know morass of cells here in a dish and it's a moving target even if you can get that inductive microenvironmental milieu and get that hematopoietic stem cell uh, the, the environment's immediately moving uh, to something else, and, and you're not able to stain it. And that to me, Arun, the, the bright side is, is this paper, is that they were able to do this in an in, in vitro context. You know granted, they had kind of endpoint cells. They weren't working from a pluripotent stem cell uh, system progenitor or anything. So who knows whether or not we can uh, make that parallel. But I think what's great is what you're talking about there is that how can we ever recapitulate this precious and majestic and miraculous milieu of the physiological AGM where these cells are born? Well, it turns out looking at this work that maybe we don't need to. So I thought a really, really exciting step forward. And you know, maybe we should get into this with our guest, Jackie Damon. She, she certainly has uh, the insight uh, to maybe recognize what a major step forward this is. But before we get to that, I have a quick message from Stem Cell Technologies. They are hiring. Stem Cell Technologies is a world leader in developing services and tools for scientists working in cell biology, regenerative medicine, immunology, cancer, and disease research. United by a foundation of scientific integrity and driven by a mission to advance science globally, Stem Cell is a team of scientists helping scientists. They're looking for creative driven people to join their international team. Explore more than 100 current offerings in areas such as R&D, sales, business operations, quality and science communication, all at jobs.stemcell.com. All right, everybody with us today, we have a special guest from Stem Cell Technologies, Dr. Jackie Damon, who is Principal Scientist In scientific support for hematology, previously director of contract assay services, again there at Stem Cell Technologies, in a career spanning over 20 years, Dr. Damon has acquired extensive experience in the field of hematopoiesis, where her key strengths lie in stem cell biology, protein biochemistry, and signaling, especially in the area of erythropoietin. She manages all aspects of the contract assay services department at Stem Cell Technologies, which includes client consultation and customized experimental design, execution, and analysis. Also, Jackie is a longtime listener of the podcast. Thanks so much, Dr. Damon, for your ears and welcome to the show.
2: Thank you. That's great to be here. Love the show
0: pleasure is ours. And we love having you on the show. We always, it is a treat to have any listener on the show. Um, Let's get started. You've been working at Stem Cell Technologies for more than two decades, as I said briefly there in the intro. That's at a company founded in 1993. So you've been there for most of the life of the company. Importantly, you've been there for the critical maturation phase of what is now, (laughs) uh, I don't know, 2000 plus strong employee, strong company. Um, Moreover, that maturation has come along with amazing strides forward generally in the basic and translational stem cell sciences. What are some examples of how that growth and change has manifested over your two decades at the company? And what are some critical, you know, what's changed effectively and grown? And what are some critical pieces of the formula that have not changed? And I think this is key to the success at stem cells is, is, you know, that secret sauce that's been maintained all these years. Can you speak to those two questions?
2: Absolutely, yes. I think the secret sauce is really in the culture. Um, One thing I've found starting at Terry Fox actually, before I came to Stem Cell, is recognizing that Alan really has a passion for people to follow their passion, right? And a passion for science. So the ability then to recognize that you're there to do a job, but at the same time you have a lot of freedom to sort of figure out what you like, what you're good at, and sort of really follow that um, within the company. And there's always those doors that are open. And the reality of working in academia actually enlightens you, I think, in a lot of ways to recognize that there are other ways to look at science. You don't actually have to be a bench scientist. I am. Um, And I was able to follow that passion even as a director. (laughs) Uh, So it didn't stop me from going into the lab, for example. And that was okay. Whereas when it comes to things like communication, I love the concept. I'm not very good at at writing. So I'm a lot better at lecturing. So I've been able to follow my passion when it comes to uh, doing a lot of teaching. Uh, And the communication part has always been to me really important to make sure that people really understand that science isn't just one thing. Uh, There's a lot of aspects to it. And that's really changed since I started, right? Um, in, in uh, you know, coming out of a career of academia. I think one of the other things about how stem cell has grown and it's been impressive to watch for sure because it's been double digits pretty much every year is that it's just kind of, it seemed to me organically, right? So that you know we worked as a team um, and we were in a lot more closer proximity but as we started to grow, of course, teams become silos as you have to create departments but at the same time, because we were so used to teamwork, I think the reality of what needed to happen next was sort of really understood by everybody involved, right? We, we didn't have a facilities part, department at one point, and that was okay because we took care of our own equipment. Then, you know, eventually we got too big for that. So we ended up with a facilities department. I started teaching actually at Stem Cell um, and really using uh, my drive to educate to talk to customers, which was really useful in contract assay department, for example. But because I was always doing that, I was also then lecturing uh, to our distributors or other salespeople that really wanted to understand the product they were selling. So I did a lot of teaching before we had an education department. Mm -hmm. And then eventually, of course, as we got bigger, we realized we needed a more structured format for that. So things have sort of grown organically. Um, It's always been one of these, this year, we're going to hire and set up these new things. And so always keeping up with that has been a challenge. But at the same time, when it helps you in your job um, and allows you to actually have more people to support you in all these different aspects, it it just didn't seem like it was growing fast. I think from a management standpoint and probably upper management, they thought, holy cow, how are we going to uh, keep up with all of this? Mm. But as an employee, it kind of looked like, look, we've got more support. So every time you turned around, there was more support for you. So from an employee standpoint, it's been fantastic.
1: Yeah. I mean, from an outsider's perspective and somebody who hasn't been in stem cell biology for, for too long, just the, the presence and just like you're saying, the growth of stem cell has been just astounding. And now the, just the, the overall command presence that you, the company has in the field is, you know, I think in my opinion, unparalleled really. So, you know, you've had a lot of different roles, like what you've alluded to at stem cell over your, your years at the company. Um, So let's actually, you know, dive a little bit deeper into what a a day in the life of Dr. Dr. Jackie Damon is like, you know, what's it like to be a principal scientist, have a hand in education, uh, be involved in contract assay services, Um, and also maybe if you could talk a little, I mean, you're maybe not directly involved with this as much anymore. If you could talk a little bit more about what sort of contract assay services stem cells actually does provide since that may not be, you know, at the forefront of, uh, some of our listeners, um, you know, what our listeners are expecting to hear. So tell us a day in your life, what it's all about, what you do, how you're able to extract as much as you can from the (laughs) workday.
2: Absolutely. Yeah, That's a really good question. I'm going to start with my day in life when I was a director in services, because that still brings me back to um, what I enjoy the most, which is, I think, part of how the department evolved in the first place. So within stem cell technologies, we recognized that we were getting a lot of requests from customers, um, and especially pharma customers, that, you know, this is a, a great assay. And in this case, I'm talking more about Using methocelulose and the colony-forming cell assay, which is really the crux of uh, the sort of core product that started stem cell technologies, and, but it's a very versatile assay, right? It can measure a lot of things. It can measure growth factors. It can measure whether your cells are you've induced stemness within your cells. So there's a lot of um, things that you can do with a you know seemingly simple um, in vivo in vitro assay, excuse me. So uh, having that sort of under my belt and working we came out of academia and then did a you know, clone a gene did a knockout used the cfu assay to really understand the effects of the knockout and how it, in, it increased the sensitivity for example of myeloid progenitors i really understood the basics of that assay and really preferred in a lot of ways to continue to um, do experiments right i was always been sort of driven by getting my hands dirty and and planning and doing experiments. So as we were getting these requests, we realized, wait a minute, we can do this. We can actually do this internally. People don't always want to get trained on how to do uh, the assays, for example, or how to use the products. So can we use those since we are the experts and provide a service for people that um, need to do testing? especially for novel drugs. And this is kind of where my passion has always been, having done a a PhD in tumor progression and really understanding the power of drugs, Um, having done a bit of a postdoc and had the pleasure to, to meet in a lot of cases, Brian Drucker, who was an inspiration as to really understanding how you can use signal transduction and identify drugs that then could be more specific and less side effects. That was kind of happening at that time where we were getting requests for, can you test my drug Um, in your experiments and the way you set up your assays? So that's really what started Contract Assay Services. And at the beginning, it was definitely a learning curve. Um, What are the processes? How do you interact with customers who want this? What do you need? Um, We had to understand the fact that you had to uh, create sort of a proposal for customers so that they could see, well, what what are you doing? What would you like to test? How can we help you with that? What clinical problems are you having? We had one person tell us at one point that um, they had gone into the clinic and their patients with this new drug and their patients had anemia. And could I explain to them what was going on? So when we took that drug and put it in the CFU assay and there was no erythroid colonies, he was very happy. And I'm like, I don't know if you should be very happy. Um, your drug is causing problems with erythropoiesis, and he's like, no, 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 now I know it's not an effect on equal production. Now I know it's actually of my drug on those cells. So there was a lot of information that you could get from that, and that sort of spurred us on to realize, wait a minute, we really can do this, and started to set up sort of an internal department within stem cell that wasn't really product-related, in other words, making product but really taking our core product, especially methylcellulose um, and the CFU assay and offering the use of that assay and designing assays to answer questions for customers that really wanted to test small drugs, look at hematotoxicity, and in some cases, evaluate the effects of novel growth factors um, and even evaluate Um, sort of the batch and bioequivalent activity of manufactured EPO, for example, Um, if you were looking at understanding your manufactured batch compared to either uh, some kind of control, that kind of thing.
0: So yeah, it really underscores the, uh, the tagline stem cell technologies there scientists helping scientists i don't know that that was kind of built in right from the start and and not even just in like a kind of altruistic philanthropic it's good business sense right you sell a product you want people to use it correctly and also you want to help people use it to the max potential and what's great about i think a, a scientific product company like stem cell technologies and you know this sounds a lot like an advertisement but i genuinely believe this is that you know you, you learn from the scientists as they're using your products and you understand it increases kind of the scope of potential use for your product just from a you know a business standpoint there's a real huge up upside there so um, it, it totally makes sense to contract assay services and, and I, I can imagine that the there's a multiplicity there that as you develop more products there's just more services that you can provide but shifting gears a bit here you know We talk on the show all the time about ips cells and the tremendous potential they have for modeling you know potentially toxic influence of environmental exposures or medical treatments as you were just alluding to there's a lot of things you can do with the cfu assay that i think that was kind of the the model that everyone based all these promises they were making on ips cells except in the case of ips cells it's kind of looking at more organ tissue specific progenitor function um, but as you were talking about, hematopoietic cells, they are the primer, right? Uh, they were the first stem cell therapy and really the first assay outside the body that was so robust and provided so much insight. Um, but what, what do you think makes hematopoietic cell systems so robust? Um, if you could just put it into words, you alluded to it there, but it's been a bit of a challenge, I would argue for IPS cells, not least of which has to do with getting those cells. Um, whereas hematopoietic cells, you know, you just pull them out of the body as primary cells. But apart from that, um, what do you think it is about the hematopoietic systems that make them such a robust model uh, for, you know, tox and and disease and and pharma and all that?
2: Yeah, I definitely am a proponent of hoping that we get more model systems from the IPS system that allows us to do a lot more drug testing in vitro, and and it's coming, right? We've got intestinal organoids. When it comes to the CFU assay, I have referred to it um, as the original organoid type assay, um, only because we recognize that the blood system is used to being sort of more free-floating. It isn't sort of tied to what is now a really exciting field of canotransduction. If I had to do this all over again, I'd love to be involved in sort of understanding that. It's just amazing that every time we look at the science, there's another layer Um, But the reality is, those cells do divide a trillion times a day. So it is amazing to me that the hematopoietic stem cell is way more robust than the mature cells. And sometimes I think that's a counterintuitive concept. Um, And one of the things that has really, you know, excites me when I get to go to meetings is really listening to people who are looking at the stem cell niche and really trying to understand what is it and how does it control chemically a lot of the function of blood stem cells. They're a bit more unique than I think some of the other stem cells, recognizing again, I come from a cancer background, they don't overgrow (laughs) in a leukemia. They stop growing in a lot of cases. And you can imagine the problems with overgrowth. So they're really incredibly tightly regulated, yet it has been the first cell that we were able to pull out and put into culture and I suspect it has a lot to do with understanding at least the fact that these cells are highly proliferative and robust, which is good as far as the lifetime of the animal is concerned, but also I think not recognizing at the time and finding out now that growth as a colony is something that hematopoietic stem cells, now that we can look and see, situ, actually depend on for a self-renewing potential. So if we'd have thrown those in liquid, and of course, you know, in the 90s, we did a lot of that, uh, we throw, threw through those cells, purified hematopoietic stem cells and threw them in liquid and tried to find all the conditions to replicate the bone marrow. And one big difference between what happens in a liquid culture with those cells is they do synchronize and they are activated and they become fate committed and they don't really do what they do in the body, and that is have that asymmetric division where they can Mm self-renew. In the the situation, though, in methylcellulose, if you've ever plucked those colonies, especially the large ones, you can actually see a big difference um, in you can see the whole developmental program right in front of you if you really look at all those cells. You don't see just mature cells. You see a mix of immature and mature. And I've always made the assumption sort of being a person that really enjoyed cytology and actually did a little cytology before I went to do my PhD, recognizing that cell contact and that ability is actually helping those cells do that self-renewing reaction. that doesn't really happen in liquid culture without that tensile strength. Mm -hmm. And we know now that if we add things like um, zwitter ions and there's been some papers on that, that you can really improve the expansion of those cells. So we can't minimize the environment of those cells or the fact that um, there's a difference between just putting it in liquid culture versus putting it in a culture that has a firmness or something to it, like a viscosity that allows those cells to, you know, unlike organoids that actually set up a polarity, um, these are, when you look at a lot of images that are coming out now, these cells where you have the most immature progenitors that have self-renewing ability, very, very close to a spicula or uh, you know, an endothelial cell or other cell type, and then progenitors that are sort of floating off of that as they become mature cells. So there's still a anchor as, as it is, um, and cells that are being sort of floated off of that, that is somewhat maintained in that methylcellulose culture that you can really then appreciate how robust those
1: cells are. Yeah, I think historically, in in my opinion, HSCs have been one of the greatest victories, represented one of the greatest victories in the stem cell field, in part because of the the translational applications of HSCs, and in part because how important HSCs have been towards stimulating the development of new technologies, such as fluorescent sorting. You know, there's been so much work that has happened in basic HSC biology that has ultimately translated into, into therapy and also technology development. So. Uh, no surprise that you know, this has been a focus of stem cell for a for a very, very long time and it certainly will be a focus of the company for a while for a while as well. You know, staying on the, the drug discovery topic, we alluded to it, you know, especially when it comes to IPSCs, which is a favorite cell type of mine. It says I'm a, I'm an IPSC biologist first and foremost. Um, you know, a big hope for the stem cell field has been the, the application, as we know, of IPSCs and their derivatives for drug screening, drug discovery. It's a lot of what I do here in my lab not just for the hematopoietic system, like what we're alluding to, but pretty much every single tissue type that you can turn iPSCs into. But a big problem is still scalability and reproducibility with this drug screening. And this is something I think everybody is running into. So how do you ensure that the cells that we're using for these drug screening applications are of the highest grade, well-defined, mature, and so on? You know, At the same time, while balancing the costs associated with some of these larger screening approaches and you know as a representative of stem cell technologies how would stem cell address some of these problems too
2: yes really focusing on in vitro assays right so that you can minimize how much work you have to do in vivo and that's really been the focus for hematopoietic stem cells which has worked really well from primary sources um, there's a lot of <laughs> it's a lot easier i think to start from a primary source because you're really just looking at one part of the developmental program versus PSEs, where you have to sort of follow that to a sort of adult level. And then you want to create an adult function, right? You want to have that cell function like an adult cell so that you can really study the effects of diseases as they would be in, in the adult. And I think this is, again, where hematopoiesis is a little bit more ahead of that game, because we can use those primary cells, and thank God, in a lot of cases, they're mostly freely available, even from diseases. So you can take AML, for example, or PV and look at the effects more specifically of drugs on those disease samples, where that's a very difficult thing to do, especially from IPS, although you can regenerate, right, that disease from your PSCs. So how to evaluate these has always been difficult, I think, when it comes to uh, PSCs, just because you are dealing with a three-dimensional object. Um, And this has come up, you know, people have asked me this at posters, like, how am I going to deal with this? That is a tough one. I mean, even with hematopoietic cells and the CFU assay, I'm depending a lot on my eye (laughs) and my experience um, and have run into drugs where I've said, wait a minute, is it possible your drug is actually inhibiting differentiation and not necessarily proliferation, which most drugs will inhibit proliferation, only because I suspect I'm seeing something that's not maturing? I can go now to the flow with those cells, right? I can harvest those cells out of methocyclosis, go to the flow, and really get some indication as to what's going on. I can harvest those cells out of methocyclosis and do some genetic analysis and really understand what's happening with those cells. It's gonna be a lot tougher, I think, with the um, organoids. Although there's been those really good examples of swelling, for example, with the intestinal organoids where you are recapitulating that physiological function. So from what I'm seeing is it's all going to be about recapitulating a very specific um, physiological function that is we recognize is the cause of the disease or the disorder that then you have to figure out, well, how do I measure this? And what is the best way to look at that? This, the CFU assay hasn't been any different, for example, if you want to look at cytokines. You really have to understand what you're doing and what you're testing, and recognize that progenitors won't grow out unless you give them the right conditions. But it doesn't mean they're not there. And this is, I think, too, where IPSCs, do we know enough that we can pick it apart in some way to improve the physiology for one um, sort of component of the biology that'll give us a, more of a physiological answer that's more correlative to what's happening in the person. And that's really the key, right? Is, and to have standards that actually show that. So that has been something that the CFU assay, we've been lucky. Uh, Dr. Piscina, um, Augusto Piscina in, in Italy, actually wrote a few papers in early 2000, really highlighting how you could, and he did sort of a double blind study to show that the CFU assay and the results of adding drugs in vitro to that assay were extremely correlative with the effects in vivo. Um, that is not necessarily true when you put them in liquid culture. I think it's not as physiological, as I mentioned, that those cells tend to take off a little bit differently. So even that small difference of putting it in restrictive media made, made it more physiological for hematopoietic cells, even though we didn't, I don't think really recognize that um, per se. When it comes to other kinds of PSC and organoids, that's gonna be interesting. I mean, I know I've seen people with the muscle ones trying to you know, understand how do we measure these cells and their ability to constrict, for example and how do you actually get a reading on that so that if you add a drug that you know actually affects that, do you see that and can you measure that? I think that's really key is to really understanding assay development, (laughs) what you're looking for, have that end in mind, and then trying to find that right cell source um, and right conditions that gives you that sort of therapeutic window of assessment. Easy to say, tough to do.
0: Yeah, yes. I mean, easy to say, tough to do. But that's 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 part of the origin story, as far as yeah. I'm I'm concerned. I mean, it's high fidelity, right? With what degree of fidelity can you recapitulate the physiology of in in the case of Alan Eves, who I've had some inspiring conversations with, both on the show and privately, and and his goal there was to recapitulate the environment of hematopoiesis and and self renewal and expansion of hematopoietic cells. Um, and one facet of that origin story that I love is that there was, you know, a group of scientists that were just trying to make media for their own use that was effective, robust, reliable, um, and the demand grew from there. Here we are three decades later, and the product catalog at StemCell continues to grow. I mean, we're talking about thousands of, of individual products now. Can you share what you see as the? I mean, I know maybe you're not in strategy or anything, <laughs> but you've been there. So, you could probably t- chart the arc. Um, you wanna share what you see as a long term vision for the company, given the expanding portfolio? I mm-hmm. mean, is that you could go in any direction you want? Um, yeah. So, speaking of, in broad terms, of course, we don't need the, you know, the strategic agenda here, but like, what, what do you see as the arc? What's the general direction that the company's moving in terms of the product portfolio?
2: I think I'm gonna go with Alan's tagline of scientists helping scientists. Um, And recognize that always is the focus. And I think even before, as we mentioned, having that tagline, that's kind of what our focus was. So, paying attention then to what customers are telling us, right? So, what are they telling us that they need um, as far as tools so that they can move things forward? And then, paying attention to when they do move these forward, what is the application that seems to be the main focus of those tools so that we can start to figure out, OK, if that's the application, how can we support that application? And this is where we have sort of moved from individual products per se to more of a workflow so that you have a full integration of starting with a cell and ending up with a, with a good analysis of whatever it is that you're looking at and whatever tissue type you're looking at. Of course, there's a lot of uh, room in there to for development, especially when it comes to assay development and what are you measuring and what is the application. So it's been a progression over the years. Um, It's been nice to see things like organoids uh, be adopted and not only in the science but also at stem cell, so that we can really support again tools for that stuff for that sort of science to move forward. Um, Where is it going? I think it's going towards not only um, sort of standardize some of these so that, and have a product that eventually, if required, can be translated into the clinic more easily. That's one focus, but the other really is then to understand that as these products mature and the science matures, and it isn't just about the product, it's really about the science maturing and the ability to find that physiological response and how to to really measure that, that's sort of where we're working towards is making sure that there's tools so that people can really embrace assays. And we're really supporting and paying attention to what those are and helping to develop those so that they can be used right for drug screening. And also, I think more with cell therapies as a potency test once we really understand the mechanism of action uh, for the treatment that we're doing
1: yeah i mean as an academic scientist i'll say that like what we alluded to stem cell has been just an amazing partner the work that we're doing, Um, not just even, not just the the translational side, but also just the pure basic science, having really high quality media reagents, equipment, you know, technology that the the scientists can really use to do the best basic science possible. Um, that's still, I'm glad to see that's always been a goal of the company. And I'm sure like we're talking about in the future, it's going to be a goal of the company for, for years to come. And stem cell is inevitably going to keep growing. Um, it's had a huge influence in shaping the overall direction of our field. Um, and the thousands of employees that we're talking about working at stem cell, there are many who are actually, you know, once upon a time, academic scientists, just such as yourself, Um, who, for some reason or another, wanted to make that jump and transition over to the industry. We see it a lot. You know, It's uh, happening a lot these days, that's for sure. And that's part of the reason that you have that tagline, right? Scientists helping scientists. You are well-trained scientists who are helping other scientists, whether they're industry scientists, academic scientists, so on, right? And so while Dalon and I are academic scientists, we're at a time in our field where opportunities are plenty in an industry. It's, it's really cool to see
2: mm-hmm. and
1: many folks, people of my generation, younger folks who, you know, either whether they're junior research associates or even more senior level institute directors. We've talked about this a lot on the show. They're these big names who are making the jump into industry. Um, now, it, I think it was a, a different time when you decided to make that transition to industry. But tell us about your own decision To make that jump. And if you could give some words of wisdom for the stem cell trainees who are also hoping to make that same jump, what would would those words be? So,
2: the reality for me was a bit different. um, And you're not wrong, it was a very different time. (laughs) Um, There wasn't a lot of choices when it came to going into industry. And what I didn't recognize at the time, and now recognize quite clearly, is there are two different kinds of industries. So having a background in signal transduction, I actually worked for a little while in a small company that was more specifically looking at a target. Um, And if you have signal transduction sort of uh, background, this this is a no brainer, right, to go into that. And I really enjoyed that concept because that was sort of always my focus, wanting to help people Drug development seemed like the best way to do that. Understanding the biochemistry was cool. (laughs) You could actually see how cells really work and in the process find out when it goes wrong and how to possibly, you know, do the chemistry and understand that biochemistry to target that more specifically. Having said that, because I was very logistical and always wanted to keep my hands in that space recognizing that when you necessarily go into academia, it's not just about having fun in the lab um, and following what you want to do, you have a lot of other responsibilities. So for me, it seemed like a better uh, place to follow my passion, if that makes sense. And I think this is where going into science is not just about understanding um, the science, you have to be curious about the science, I think, going in. But where, where do you want that curiosity to go? And do you want to continue to learn? Or you know, um, other things that you can do when it comes to teaching? Like, what, what is your actual passion? For me, it was teaching. I wanted to teach. But as you guys know, I, I don't know how much teaching you get to do um, in an academic career. There's a lot of, obviously, writing and stuff, which wasn't necessarily my strong point. And I recognized that, so I really took an inward look to really identify, well, what am I good at? What do I like to do? What is my passion? What's going to make it fun for me so it's almost not like work? And that's when I realized, and uh, the contract assay department was just starting at Stem Cell Technologies. And I knew a lot of people there, obviously, coming from the Terry Fox lab. I inquired sort of about that department and recognized, yeah, that's actually a lot more up my alley to really be involved, not only in the lab, but also discussing and working with people um, and with drug companies that had these questions about, well, how can we test our drugs to make them safe? What can you tell us about uh, our drugs, for example, and how can you help us understand what the targets are? That's the really that was really the funnest part, I think, contract assay, even though In a lot of cases, it was confidential information and they wouldn't not everybody would tell you about their target. Sometimes you could actually just figure it out by the data that was coming in. So it was almost an interesting puzzle to solve. But I learned a lot from toxicologists and people that were in the field and pharma looking at different ways to solve problems and and evaluate diseases and find um, ways to help people that I really enjoyed doing that job and didn't want that to end at all. But recognizing that in doing that, I was also doing a lot of uh, assay design and a lot of customer support and questions. So it was kind of nice to move into education where I could focus a little bit more on that and not necessarily uh, worry about the like the uh, all the other details that come with management, for example, (laughs) Um, that you have to do.
0: Yeah, I mean, if there's any, any amazing upside, well, there's so many upsides, right, but the, uh, the proliferation of opportunity in the sciences means that there's so so many more fits uh, between a scientist and and science and even in their own career, as you just identified there, you can move laterally and, and and change your role in, in science nowadays, like never before. You know you got these exactly. big name people gods in the sciences suddenly starting their taking their tasks to industry so um it's really a, a field in flux and it's been really great talking to you because you've given us an insight not just of of industry as it is now but industry as it's been during this metamorphosis um to the juggernaut that stem cell tech at least is right now but before we let you go um you kind of spoke toward your personal journey there but Um, maybe you could put your finger on something for for some of the trainees or other uh, individuals listening now Um, what's the best piece of advice that you've ever been given uh, either professional or not
2: Um, when it came to actually working at stem cell I was obviously working as a previously as an academic scientist and then moving into what we would call a GXP workflow, <laughs> um, in this case, good laboratory practice,
0: mm-hmm. as
2: an academic scientist who liked to really just make things up and fly by the seat of your pants and sort of listen to what the biology was telling you, um, that was the huge change. Um, and you had to recognize that you had to document a lot more than I was used to and really understand what good laboratory practice was about. So one of the best advice I got from one a company that audited me the guy kind of pushed me aside and he said, just so you know, (laughs) GLP is something you always strive towards, but never actually are. And I'm like, okay. (laughs) So he's like, it's always changing. Um, There's always these current practices before we really understand, you know, the details of a process that we can then really fit into a true GLP workflow. And it's always going to change. You always have to be adaptable to that, but always recognizing that, there are ways to improve how you do things, not only as efficiently, but also to make sure that you've documented everything in a way that once you've done it a few times and had to go back and go, oh no, I didn't write that part down, you realize how critical having all that information can become um, for traceability. And from what I could tell, it was fantastic advice because whenever I went to an FDA talk at, uh, at a, you know, one of the meetings, it was always hammering home. If you did the science well, if you had controls, if everything was documented, if you can actually prove all your equipment was working and there's no reason to have a like a, a false negative, for example, um, then they're happy, you know, that this is a validated workflow. So just recognizing that good science never dies um, and you really have to think about all the steps and if you had to repeat it over and over, making sure that you have that documented. So there are no surprises. And when there are surprises, you can very easily trace back as to the reasons why.
0: That's great. GLP, it's not an end point. Mm-hmm. It's a state of mind, right? I mean, that's some it truth is. there because it's never what you what you think. right? You can't anticipate what's going to go bad. I know Arun was telling me the other day about how his diffs were in the crapper. For weeks and he he tried everything and in the end it was the meter on the incubator was reading wrong you know what i mean it's like only because he had the records of the 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 manual Mm -hmm. could he then verify that so yeah that's the thing right if you have if you have the glp there and you never stop grinding then uh you can keep the science going that's a great piece of advice finally before we let you go if you were not a scientist god help us all what would you be
2: Yeah, that is also uh, an interesting one because I enjoy science so much. I actually applied to vet school um, when I was in my undergraduate, and I have a feeling now that I would have been one of those pathologists in a in a drug company doing what they call scientific veterinary science, right, really helping move that science forward. Um, Alternatively, as an undergraduate, I worked in a photo studio and I really enjoyed photography. I think it's ironic now, obviously, as I spend my time looking down a microscope, taking pictures of hematopoietic colonies in a lot of cases. Um, And that's usually where if my staff can't find me um, and I haven't showed up to a meeting, they run right into the lab and look look at the microscope. And that's usually what they find. So it's still my passion to sort of photography. I hope to be able to uh, do more landscapes. Uh, in my future and you know animal uh, sort of photography so I have to learn digital photography all over because when I did it it was you know the old school film and aperture and speed so um, at least with a microscope it's still a lot about that which has been awesome but I really have to catch up on my digital photography in my future and follow that passion I hope as I move on and retire at some point
0: i totally get it i mean the common denominator there for me it's it's results right results 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 you do an experiment you get a result and and with digital photography it's kind of immediate gratification i think you might be disappointed that you lost out on the process but i'll tell you one thing you've been working your whole career toward positive results at stem cell tech making results for the rest of us be robust and reliable and we all appreciate that and more than that we appreciate your time today and sharing with our audience. Thank you so much, Dr. Damon, for speaking with us and sharing. Well,
2: thank you. Um, It's been a pleasure to meet you both and uh, to be invited.
0: All right, you guys, that brings us to the end of this episode. Don't forget to subscribe to our newsletter at www.stemcellpodcast.com to get the show notes, including an episode summary and links to all the interview and roundup papers. You can also reach out to us on Twitter at Stem Cell Podcast or by email at info at stemcellpodcast.com with feedback or to suggest guests. We had a great one on this episode, a little peek behind the curtain at Stem Cell Technologies. Thanks so much for their continued support and for the thoughts of our guest, Jackie Damon. Be sure to catch us in a couple weeks for another episode. We'll see you then.